This is a Federal News Network podcast. A team of four students at a Virginia university won a challenge competition put on by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Hosted by FDIC's Center for Financial Research, this year's challenge asked students to examine how the pandemic affected banking. Here with details, the FDIC's senior economic researcher, John Pogash. Mr. Pogash, good to have you on. Nice to be here with you. What was the purpose of the competition in terms of what the FDIC was hoping to get out of this? The academic challenge is an opportunity for the FDIC and the CFR, Center for Financial Research, to engage with the academic community at large and with students in particular to help encourage them to think through the complex kinds of questions that we as the FDIC, as a banking regulator, have to deal with ourselves. It's a great opportunity for us to also promote careers at the FDIC and in economics and similar fields to young, promising students. Yeah, because when you combine economics and banking, that's not a vastly subscribed to area of academic work for a lot of students. And yet you and I know how fascinating it is. But this is a way, I guess, to get those people to understand, yeah, this is a great place, right? It's a way for them to both understand the great things that we do at the FDIC, but also just getting them to think about these topics, which, frankly, without competitions like this or a particularly motivating professor or things that might not be on their radar. And there's just a lot of interesting questions and challenges for them to explore. And do they win any kind of prize or what happens to the team? We'll get into the details, but the team that won, what do they win? Really, it's bragging rights. I think it's a great opportunity for them to also engage with bankers. It's a great opportunity for them to engage with professors and future careers. I know that last year's winners talked about the great experience that it was for them, the things that they learned and the ways that it helped promote their thinking about their future careers in economics. And for the rest of their lives, the FDIC will ensure their deposits no charge. (laughs) Uh, We charge the banks, not not the consumers. (laughs) Right. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. All right. So which university team won? And tell us more about who they are. So James Madison University was the winner of the competition. Three of them are from Virginia as a Virginia State University. And then there's also one competitor who's from Chile. And they, I think, are a mix of juniors. So it's usually people who are a little bit later in their undergraduate careers and they've had experience to think about some of the issues that they've learned in their class and then can apply them to a real-world setting. And what was the question specifically they were asked to make an entry over? So the question for the students was to understand the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on the banking industry. This year, the question was fairly broad, and we gave them some prompts uh, that might help them think through different parts of how they might answer that question. But it was really up to the student teams themselves to decide what they thought was most relevant to the banking industry coming out of this pandemic and what lessons they think we as the FDIC or really the public at large should be taking away from the pandemic and its relation to the banking system. All right. And how many teams entered the competition? The number of teams that enter the competition is not in the public sphere, but people submit answers to the FDIC in written form, and we evaluate those, and then we select five finalist teams. And does the FDIC provide data bases or data sets for them to use in the research they're doing pursuant to their entry? Yes, the FDIC goes through quite a bit of effort to post uh, interesting data sets. It's a way for them to interact with the data that we produce at the FDIC. 
and also to help them be able to link it up to other data sets that are publicly available so that they can uh, help answer the questions. That being said, a lot of student teams developed some of their own data or worked with their own data to help answer the question as well. Sure. We're speaking with John Pogash. He's senior economic researcher at the FDIC. And of course, the FDIC does all this research and you know banking intimately and follow every trend. Did you actually learn something from what the students came up with? Yeah, I think we definitely learned something from what the students came up with. There were a lot of different presentations. There were excellent presentations across a wide range of schools. And I think they all did a very nice job. They also bring a perspective that, frankly, I think not everyone has as as students. They are going to become the future consumers and the future regulators and the future bankers of the world. And seeing how they look at some of these issues, specifically with respect to technology, I think was really fascinating. Right. And these students are mostly economic majors or do they have other fields that they're deeply into? So we advertise to economics and finance programs. I think that the students uh, are all coming from economics, but we do advertise to both. So I think this was actually a business school, but economics programs and finance programs are the ones that are competing. And what's the format? Do they just send in a written document or do they make in-person presentations? How does it work? So the first round is written submissions and the written submissions There's a page limit. They include tables and figures and citations and executive summary. Those initial submissions are reviewed internally by FDIC economists. Uh, We anonymize all of the submissions so that the people who are reading the submissions don't know the names of the people, the schools that they're coming from, to really minimize any kind of bias in the evaluation. From those, five submissions are selected. Those five submissions then become our finalists, and they're invited to present at the FDIC. Unfortunately, last year and this year again, we were somewhat limited in the ability to bring them on site to the FDIC to present in person, which is something that we would like to do at some point. But at least for last year and this year, they presented virtually, and the presentations are about 30 minutes to two external judges coming from community banks, one external judge who is coming from a university, and two internal economists who were part of the review team as well. And again, everything is kept anonymous about the students until the selections for the winners are made. And overall, did the contest, I guess this was the second year of it, did it meet your goals for the FDIC's aims in having this effort done every year? Yeah, I definitely think that this is meeting our aims. We every year strive to bring this to a wider range of schools and participants and really try and widen the set of students who might be interested in these topics. So we've increased submissions from one year to the next, almost doubling them. We hope to continue to do that. And I think that this is great exposure for students to us. It's a great exposure uh, for us to students. And I look forward to many more years of positive interactions uh, with students and the academic community. Too soon to say you've been able to hire someone from among these students. Correct. It's a little bit soon to look at the long-term progress after two years. Uh, As an economist, uh, I don't want to talk about long-term progress of the limited amount of time that we've had. But as part of the day that they're presenting here, we do introduce them to our intern recruiters. We talk to them about different economics careers. And I think even if they don't join us specifically at the FDIC, the idea that they're thinking about these topics and engaging with them hopefully will improve really the whole banking community over the years to come. 
And by the way, what were some of the major effects on banking of the pandemic? So there were many. One of the things that the students explored was technology and how banks adopted technology over the course of the pandemic. That was a very interesting thing to hear their perspectives on. There were also interesting presentations about what it meant for credit quality. There were a lot of different government programs. So how credit quality moved during the pandemic was something that a lot of the different presentations delved into. And from the perspective of the FDIC, there was also a big influx of deposits. And that was also uh, something that we continue to think about as the FDIC of what that means for us as the Deposit Insurance Corporation. John Pogash is Senior Economic Researcher at the FDIC. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information about the challenge at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best, and so we now have people who work for me all over the world, and as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling, not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.